Listener Production. A warning. This episode references violence and sexual assault. For more information and support, the National Domestic and Family Sexual Violence Counselling Service can be contacted on 1800 737 732 or by visiting 1800respect.org.au. If you or someone you know is in crisis, contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Welcome to Crime Insiders Forensics. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So, I thought, why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week, you'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. This week, how a piece of carpet and one dyed blue hair helped convict two of Australia's most calculated female killers. And that carpet was missing, it's gone, but there's always some type of evidence that's left behind. Dr Carrie Pitts is a forensic chemist who has worked on over 300 criminal cases, including murders, violent assaults, arson and fatal hit and runs. She's also used her trace evidence expertise to pioneer an initiative that has so far assisted WA police in over 150 sexual assault investigations. It doesn't matter what someone else wants. The evidence shows what the evidence shows. To begin, we hear about an 18-year-old boy who was lured to his death by two adult women, one with serial killer ambitions, the other a mother of three with a penchant for sexual sadism. It basically came about when two people that were basically two older women were focused on a, focused on a, a younger boy. He was a teenage boy. He'd built a relationship with these people uh, beforehand and they had a history of almost friends. Uh, so they lured him to a particular location, a particular house, and, and unfortunately he was he was actually murdered. He went missing, uh, there was a search, and he was discovered buried underneath some concrete pavers at a particular house. Now, obviously, my work is is trace evidence. I don't analyse DNA analysis. It's one aspect of, of a lot of criminal cases. But my evidence within this particular case was looking at a particular hair that was recovered from the deceased. It was found on him physically within the actual wrapping that he was buried in. So hair has the identi- has the potential to identify an offender, uh, but that's only if you have particular DNA material or if DNA is actually recoverable from it. In this particular case, the hair was bright blue. So it was ruled out for being suitable for DNA analysis because there was not sufficient root material for DNA. So we were actually asked, okay... Sorry, it was definitely not the victim. It wasn't the victim's, no. He was. He didn't have blue hair. Uh, so as part of the investigation, it was a very small part of a larger investigation, as you can imagine, but we were actually asked to compare this particular hair that was recovered from the deceased 
with a control sample that was actually seized from one of the potential offenders. Now, in photographs from her arrest, she had visibly coloured hair. However, it was a quite a faded greenish colour. So when we had the control from her, we first look at the control sample to see what we're dealing with. And so there was a mixture of brown hair and visibly bleached coloured hair. That colouring was a palish green and so it was consistent with her bleaching her hair and then colouring her hair either a blue or a green. Obviously as blue fades, I've dyed my own hair, never thought when my mum allowed me to dye my hair when I was in high school that it would actually then have forensic relevance (laughs) later on. Uh, But I know that blue hair dye as it washes out and as it degrades, it changes colour, it fades to a greenish and then it goes to kind of a weird murky brownish green. So basically from that particular aspect, I then looked at the recovered hair and I said, okay, well, she has dyed hair. It was bleached, so there's a visible bleach marking, and then it was potentially a blue-green at some stage previously. Now, there was previous witness testimony and previous evidence that showed that she did have actually blue hair. It was just the time frame between the event or the murder and the control sample being seized from her was was too long and she's obviously washed her hair during that time. So the hair recovered from the deceased again was a particular length. It was a consistent length with the range of lengths that I had from her hair. It was visibly bleached and then it was dyed blue. So at the end of that analysis, I was actually able to say, I can't exclude this particular person as being the source of this particular hair. And so it was a small piece of a larger scheme of evidence. So I was not able to exclude her as being the source of this particular hair. I couldn't say it was definitively this particular dye and I didn't do extractions, what I would normally do if I needed to do a full analytical workup. It was sufficient to say that this hair could have come from this particular person. I can't exclude her as the source. In terms of hair dye, is it like paint in that each one has a specific colour? Or is it more that um, that you can have a number of different colour dyes all conglomerated? Definitely. It's the same as fibres as well. So any manufactured item, the manufacturer doesn't necessarily worry too much about the components of the dye. They're more worried about the end product. What does it look like? So in hair dyes, the same as fibre dyes or fabric dyes or paints, they can use different formulations of dyes. It has to still perform as it should do. So if it's a semi-permanent colour, you want it to be able to wash out. So it can't be incredibly bonded to the hair molecules themselves, to the keratin or whatever it's actually bonding to. In uh, non-permanent dyes or the washout ones, it can't adhere or chemically bonds to the hair. In permanent dyes, it actually has a characteristic within the chemical formulation that it sticks. It has to stick. And that's why it's a permanent dye. It doesn't wash out or degrade over time. So the manufacturers are basically looking for the formulations within their chemical structure to allow it to do what it has to do, but also look the same. So you can actually get subtle differences within the formulation 
that we can then sometimes detect in our analyses. It really does depend on the formulation as used. So say, for example, within fibres, if you have a particular set of fibres, those fibres may have dyes that absorb within a particular region. Say, for example, you have purple. It might look like the same purple, but it could be two subtly different dyes formulations between manufacturers. You'll have a red dye and a blue dye, or there might be a red dye, a pink dye, and a blue dye. So it might be that those differences we can detect within our analytical scheme. It's why we do so many different techniques, because each instrumentation or each chemical test tells us something slightly different about what we're dealing with. So we throw pretty much everything we have at these analyses and see where we can find the differences. And then the fun part comes in, what does that difference actually mean? So in this particular hair dye case, the differences were probably due to her washing her hair. So it's a, it's a history. And that's a major problem within forensics is you are dealing with a past event. You are dealing with a snapshot of history that things change. You don't get that in any other science. It's why forensics is so interesting because everything changes and then you get the intentional change as well. So within that particular same case, they did a cleanup. They actually cleaned things down. They tried to remove the evidence and so they cut out a section of carpet and that carpet was missing. It's gone but there's always some type of evidence that's left behind. So in this particular case, as well as the hair dye, we also had a knife, like a Stanley knife or a cutting knife, a box cutter that was used. And there was fibres recovered from that knife that showed that it was more likely to have been used to cut the carpet section rather than just being sort of laid on the surface of it. So it's one of those things that you are dealing with history, but there's always a way for us to work out what's gone on or what the evidence actually shows us. In that case then, you're talking about different types of fibres in the top of the carpet from underneath near the underlay. Yes, yes. So most carpet itself is made of, used to be jute changes, now it's like a grass. Think hessian, same type of stuff. And then the carpet loops the actual fabric that you walk on, the material that you walk on, is looped into that particular carpet. Within the backing of this particular carpet was some very uh, thick, uh, I think it was polypropylene or polyethylene, clear fibres within the backing. So that backing fibre or that backing component wasn't present in the carpet itself. It was only present in the backing. So on the knife, I had the three different types of fibres that made up the top part of the carpet, so the carpet that you're actually walking on, as well as some remnants or some material that came from the backing, which meant that I was able to say more than just it had been in contact with the carpet, it then supported the evidence or supported the proposition that it was from the underlay or it had actually gone through the underlay backing itself rather than just being on the top of the carpet. So again, that strongly supports the idea that these two had cut through the carpet. Yes, that's how that section came to be missing. There was obviously a large amount of scene work in this particular case. It was it was very extensive and very, very thorough by the West Australian police that were processing this crime scene. 
we got occasionally get phone calls from them. Oh, we're at the scene. We've got this particular aspect. What can we do to capture that? But in this particular case, they did a very thorough examination and it was due to their seizure of these types of materials that my evidence or my work becomes so much more uh, straightforward. If I have the control samples that are taken at that particular time, it becomes very easy to be then do the analyses when I'm just doing a straight comparison and there's none of this changing by history. Well, in that case that you you worked on, you've obviously got the bodies buried under the house. You've got one of the two main suspects, what looks like their hair, discovered inside the tarpaulin that was wrapped around the deceased. So that's fairly incriminating and circumstantial evidence in itself. And as ideal as it would be to find out the die and prove it and confirm even more, you also have to look at what are the chances of you getting benefit from all that extra work versus the cost? Definitely. It, it's from our perspective, I could do so much on so many different evidence types. I do a large amount of evidence and knowing when to stop and that small amount of benefit that you get from doing even more analyses, you do have to look at the cost benefit of these types of things. Is it worth or is it required? Is it needed to go down this full analysis suite? You actually analyze absolutely every aspect of the case or is what you've actually concluded sufficient when tied in and looked in with the rest of the analysis? And that's where the police come in. So the case officer in this particular case was actually able to look at the rest of the evidence away from my aspects, because I'm only one small part of a larger larger group of, of things that are going on. And so, yes, it becomes a point. That's why we, within physical evidence or within trace evidence, we don't tend to get involved in the, in the volume crimes. I don't tend to be asked to analyse very simple break and enters or, you know, car stereos that get stolen. My main focus is homicides, sexual assaults, grievous bodily harms, armed robberies and attempted murders because we are expensive. It takes me a long time to do my analyses and I have a very expensive analytical suite. You can't put a price on justice. So if the case requires it, we will push and we will make that effort to go through all of these analysis. That's why we did so much for the Claremont case. But we have to be realistic that there is only a small number of us and that everyone has finite resources. If you actually do analyse, for example, this hair, can you then store it and come back again and further analyse the dye if that's required? Yes, yes. It's, it's something that we are very mindful now of the opportunities uh, for future analyses. So... I work on cold cases, I work on uh, normal, you know, sort of current cases as well. And so there is, within every type of analysis, we are always looking at where do we stop and what can potentially be done in the future. So we want to do analyses that will not compromise future analyses. So say, for example, uh, I'm analysing clothing. I want to make sure that I don't contaminate it with my DNA. So I will take DNA precautions just in case it needs DNA further on. 
if it hasn't already been, obviously. But the WA police, especially we work quite closely with the special crime squad and the major case team as well within WA police force, that we are always mindful of the effect of our analyses on future analyses but also the possibility that future analyses may answer a question that we can't answer at the moment. So it really does become that balancing act. Science, it changes. You get more and more developments. What I used to be able to do that would take me an hour and a half, two hours, I now have an instrument that can do in less than five minutes. It doesn't mean that everything takes five minutes, but it's one of those things that as technology evolves, as we know more about things, as the, the developments and the science evolves, we can do more with less. And that's always the possibility that you could potentially go back and do a case that's 20, 30 years old and find something or analyse something and get an answer that you weren't able to. You've seen it within DNA profiles. It used to be you could only do blood typing. Now they can do so, so much more. Trace evidence is the same. You know, the material may change subtly over time, but what does change is the instrumentation or the chemistry behind it that you can actually use. Other cases you've worked on, there's a specific hit and run. And from television shows, people watching crime, pretty much it's a matter of locating the car, seeing the dent seeing if the paint's chipped off, that sort of thing. But what I find fascinating is your involvement in far more than just the dents in the car. Definitely. So trace evidence is one of those things. I usually refer to it as whatever is left after everyone else has taken their bit out. So I do analyse these everyday remnants of life that are involved in these crimes, and that can be something as varied as hair, which is dyed with a with a hair dye, to paint from where cars have, have hit each other, to glass, to gunshot residue. So pretty much everything that's within our day-to-day lives may become an important piece of evidence. Now, in this particular case, there was a married couple that were going home after having dinner at the pub on a Friday night. Uh, and they were, as they were crossing the road, they were hit by a vehicle. Now, this vehicle didn't stop the deceased actually was thrown clear from the vehicle at the particular time, but the other person was hit. Uh, the husband was actually carried for about 500 metres and dislodged when the car turned a corner. Now, the car did not stop. It did not report the incident and it did not render aid. The next day, so this happened on a Friday night, the next morning uh, a person attended a police station and they said, I think I hit something in my car car last night as I was driving home. So the police have done some investigation and they've seized the vehicle. Now within, obviously within again, the analysis within the West Australian Police Force, the investigator uh, has looked at this and looked at the aspects of this particular case that might be useful evidence in this particular case. There was DNA evidence, there was blood within the vehicle, but there was also the victim's clothing that was seized, and so we were asked to examine that for glass. But additionally, there was two small remnants, dark little bits of what looked to be potentially plastic, embedded actually in the windscreen, a giant hole in the windscreen with these two little black things stuck there. 
So the question became, well, what are they? Why are they in my windscreen? It's obviously, you know, relevant to the case because it's it's kind of pinched within the windscreen. So it's actually stuck within uh, the embedded. fragments of the windscreen that was intact. It's actually stuck there, yeah. So it's actually kind of been pinched out and is caught within the glass fragments that make up the windscreen. So it became important to work out what it was. Is it part of the vehicle? Uh, is it from one of the victims? Is it something that's completely unrelated that is just you know, contamination, which is obviously always a possibility if I hit something beforehand? So when I looked at these small remnants, they were polyurethane, very kind of foamy appearance and, and just wondering what they were. So I called the case officer and I said, okay, can I have the victim's shoes, please? Because my thought process was the external pattern on one of these remnants looked like little bumps and they had kind of a foamy appearance. So they looked kind of like a sponge. Polyurethane is a very common polymer, very common plastic. And so I said, can I have the shoes? So they sent me the left shoes because that's how they were seized. They were seized separately because they were actually separate at the scene. So they sent me the left shoes. Now, one of the victim's shoes I was able to rule out very quickly. It was distinctly different. The other shoe actually was made of the same material. It looked very similar down the microscope. It was polyurethane with a foamy appearance, but there was no visible damage to it. So I called the case officer again and said, can I have the right shoe, please? So they sent me the right shoe. When the right shoe came in, within the small instep of that particular shoe was a small little nick. That nick looked similar in shape. Within trace evidence, you've got to go back a step. Within trace evidence, we are commonly comparing mass-produced materials. We have how many T-shirts would be exactly the same of something you bought in Kmart. Well, there would be boatloads of them, for lack of a better term. So we're looking for variations within mass-produced materials. And so most of the time, the strongest that I can be is I can say it comes from this particular source, so this particular T-shirt, or any other T-shirt that I can't distinguish based on all of the analyses that I've done. And that's why we do more analyses to be able to distinguish more and more and more. So say for a glass fragment, it'll be that particular window or any other window that has the same starting formulation. Above that in analyses is a physical fit. Now that is basically where the event is considered so distinctive and so unreproducible that a fit where there's no difference, it's almost like fitting a jigsaw puzzle back together. You've got that one remaining piece and it fits perfectly in that little spot. That physical fit is the strongest evidence that I can possibly have in my particular area. It's almost as strong as DNA evidence because it's considered a very, very unlikely to be repeatable event. Now, in this particular case, that small remnant that was recovered from the windscreen physically fit back into that small nick that I'd identified in the victim's shoe. This is tiny. This has got to be so small. Well, it was big for me. So it was about one to two millimetres in size. <laughs> but I'm used to working small. at very, very small things. Obviously, the case officer who actually processed the vehicle themselves, they did really well to actually recover these and actually recover them in an aspect that didn't damage them. Because don't forget, they've actually pulled it out of the windscreen. 
So they've recovered it in a manner that hasn't damaged this ability to do a physical fit. So my report, when this report was actually issued, I was actually able to say because of the physical fit that this shoe and no other had hit this windscreen and no other with sufficient force to impart the damage to the shoe and embed the remnant in the windscreen. So it was actually be able to tie to an activity rather than just a source. This is an area that is, an, again, another expanding area within forensic chemistry is looking at being able to interpret further down to the activity level. You can say, okay, these two glass, you know, this glass fragment could have come from this particular window, but then you can look at it from an activity proposition. This offender broke the window and the damage or the evidence has been transferred to them as part of that particular activity. So this particular case is probably one of the strongest associations I could ever have. And I did definitely did a little dance in the lab on that particular day. Horrible case. I wish it hadn't have happened, but the actual evidence that came out of it was really, really interesting and really valuable from my perspective. But one of the things is you have to question the driver's story. I think I hit something last night and there's a hole in his windscreen, there's blood inside the car. Yes, he would have known what he hit. Unfortunately, in this particular case, if he had have just stopped, that came out as part of the sentencing that there was CCTV of him having drinks at the same pub where these two um, were actually having dinner, that he was having after work drinks, he was described as being unsteady on his feet. So there was obviously that implication that he was driving under the influence. Within Western Australia, under the Road Traffic Act, you actually have to see samples within four hours to be considered driving under the influence for these charges. But he actually ended up pleading guilty to dangerous driving causing death, dangerous driving causing grievous bodily harm, and failure to stop at a tr fatal traffic crash. Now, the failure to stop charge obviously would have been negated if he had have stopped. The sentencing or the maximum sentence for that offence is actually very similar to the dangerous driving under the influence charges or whatever the actual aspect would be within that particular case. So in this particular case, it's, it's a horrible case and Thank goodness one of the, the victims actually was able to survive, but the personal cost to him and his family is, is immense just because someone made a really, really stupid decision. There's another part that you mentioned that in, your work involves, and that is your involvement with sexual assault investigations. We've talked to a forensic physician, clinical forensic medicine, and we've talked about the process of sexual assault examination. But you're actually contributing and and even moving more forward in the science of investigating sexual assaults. Yes. So within Western Australia, we've had uh, in the last probably four years or so, a real focus on optimising the use of evidence in a large number of cases. We've obviously had the cold case homicide squad or the special crime squad that have been working on them. Uh, within West Australian police force, there's also the major case team. There's also the sex assault squad. Now we've worked quite closely 
uh, with members of the of the sex assault squad and what we refer to as SARC. Now, SARC is the Sexual Assault Resource Centre. These are medical practitioners within Western Australia focused purely on the victims of sexual assault allegations and sexual assault complainants. Now, there was a kind of lack of understanding or a lack of awareness around the use of sexual lubricants. Now, there's been within published studies and kind of anecdotal evidence as well out of the United States and Europe that there is more of an awareness of offenders for science, for forensics, to identify them. Now, one of the ways they can combat that is to wear a condom. It can also be used for the normal way a condom is actually used for is, is minimising the risk of sexually transmitted disease and minimising the risk of pregnancies or conception. But obviously one of the larger benefits to an offender is the ability to stop DNA from being transferred to the internal areas of the complainant. We looked at that and the aspect of that is, well, there might not necessarily be DNA, but in most cases, when we did a population study, there's over 95% of the condoms on the Australian, New Zealand and Swiss market actually have a lubricant. That lubricant transfers. And so the lubricant becomes the evidence that is of interest to the particular case rather than the DNA analysis and or the DNA, the sperm that might actually be present. So a medical practitioner can sample intimately. So we actually worked with the SARC doctors to develop their process and develop their, and sort of optimize their process of collecting samples for lubricant analysis. And it allows us to capture that evidence at a point in time that minimizes the loss of it. So we have now guidelines with the Sexual Assault Resource Centre doctors, the medical practitioners there in their standard procedures, that if a victim or a complainant presents at SARC and they say a condom was used within 48 hours of the alleged event, plus or minus a little bit of, of leeway, they will actually take a sample routinely. Additionally, if there is any memory loss or memory gaps, they will also take a lubricant sample internally. Just a Normally it's just a vaginal spiral swab. They will take one routinely. Again, if there's allegations of stealthing, so that's the non-consensual removal of the condom. Now, it might be that in a stealthing case, there is actually DNA, there is actually sperm present. However, the presence of a lubricant and the sperm can help corroborate the victim's allegation of stealthing, that the condom was actually removed. Obviously, we can't uh, have evidence or we don't provide evidence in terms of consent or intent. I can only say that the presence of lubricants is consistent with that particular story that a condom was used. So basically, this is now part of a routine analysis that goes within Western Australia. And we don't compromise DNA analysis in any way, shape or form. So we basically worked with the SARC doctors to develop this, this scheme. And so now it ties in really well with the sex assault squads processing and, and focus and the West Australian police forces focus on minimising and reducing gender-based violence because it captures that evidence at a time that we can use it. So we've gone from maybe one or two lubricant cases per year 
2019 to 40 to 50 to 60 cases per year. So again, unfortunately, it's one of these case types that I would really love to never have to analyse. But capturing that evidence and being able to say that, yes, there is the presence of this silicone-based lubricants, which is about 80% of the condoms on the market, being able to say that, yes, there is the presence of this. And we're talking about 10 to 20% of the cases that we are actually receiving are actually positive for lubricant residues being present on the swabs. So we worked with them to minimise the effect of our evidence or our evidence collection on DNA because obviously if DNA is present, we really want to make sure that we can use it to identify potential offenders. But our lubricant space and our lubricant analyses work is focusing on supporting that and the presence of a lubricant corroborates the victim's allegations in terms of that there was some form of activity but it can also explain why there might not necessarily be DNA present as well. Is it possible to narrow down the type of lubricant or compare it to brands, for example, if someone, um, if you're linking a series of sexual assaults and there seems to be a serial offender using the same type of condom? Yes and no. Long story short, it depends. Most of the condoms that we see within the Australian market are lubricated with the silicone-based lubricants, and that's a chemical called polydimethylsiloxanes, PDMS. Detecting PDMS, it's not a naturally occurring compound. So detecting it on a vaginal swab infers that there is some form of lubricant present. That's most of the market within condoms. Depending on the manufacturer, you can get additives. So you can get benzocaine as a numbing agent. You can get flavorings or um, or scents. In some specialized areas, you'll also see a chemical called anoxanol 9, which is a spermicide. It's heavily dominated in the US. We occasionally see it here, but it's actually restricted uh, within Australia and New Zealand. So it's actually kind of being phased out in terms of its use. So we can't at the moment specifically identify to a particular brand unless that brand has something distinctive about it. So whether it's got one of these specific additives or they use a particular particular type of PDMS that's distinctively different. So there are very subtle variations, but you think this is a heavily regulated industry. It's a very sensitive area on both sides in terms of its actual end use. So there is a lot of regulation about what can and can't be used. So as a consequence, most of the, the variation that we see is not necessarily in the lubricant itself. It's more in the packaging or the colour or the components of the, the outer stuff that don't affect its actual end use. So we can't identify manufacturers at this particular stage, but it really does depend. Uh, and it's one of those areas that might emerge further. Are you seeing more cases of stealthing? Because this was a thing that really we hadn't heard about as a crime, but it actually is a crime. I think it's become more and more recognised that it is actually an offence. The removal of a condom without consent changes the consent of the people that are involved. I know that a large number of states recently, within the past probably three or four years, have actually been looking at adding this into the criminal code 
because it kind of was a bit of a grey area before. But you, you consented to the sex, you just didn't consent to the sex without the condom. So as a consequence, I think the more people recognise that it is an offence, the more we will see it being reported as an offence because people recognise that, oh, this actually isn't right and there is something that I can do about it. And if somebody is tempted to remove the condom, knowing that you can check for the lubricant and DNA, they may think twice. Yes, obviously there is, there's always going to be stories and, and you know two sides of the aspect of every of every of every matter, but there is always that possibility. Every case that I've always worked on, people have an awareness. This so-called CSI effect is becoming more and more prevalent. Offenders are aware of the os. You know, everyone's seen CSI, everyone's seen NCIS, everyone's seen these true crime shows or the podcasts or whatever. That forensics has the ability to do so much, but there is always something else. We always look to push and if something becomes of interest, you know, that we will develop a technique for it or already have one established. If it's a mass-produced chemical of any way, shape or form, we can do something with it. I always like to refer to the police if I can know what I'm looking for I have an aspect of what I'm actually interested in or what is actually going to be useful for this, I can target my analysis appropriately. So just because they can't see it doesn't mean I won't find it. That's a brilliant philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, It's been time and time again. I've had a case once where a metal pipe was used. The metal pipe was used pretty much as the murder weapon, but it was alleged to have been hit against the wall that was painted a couple of times beforehand. So the problem was they wanted the paint analysed, but the metal pipe had been through Pathwest analysis and so they'd swabbed it for DNA. So they were like, oh, well, I don't know if you're actually going to find anything because DNA have swabbed it. We don't know what's left. So when I looked at it down the microscope, I was actually still able to find paint and I was actually then able to analyse that paint and compare it to the wall. Uh, so it's, yeah, I always remind them that just because they can't see it doesn't mean I won't find it. In terms of coping with the material you're exposed to and the stories behind the material you're exposed to, you're not just safe in a lab. You're not in your own little bubble. You are working with law enforcement. You're working with juries, you know, testifying, lawyers and sexual assault units and doctors. How do you actually cope without your cup filling up? For me... The way that I cope with it is I'm helping. I've done a large amount of you know, sort of leadership courses and other bits and pieces. And part of that is working out what drives you. And my passion, I have a very strong sense of justice. The way that I deal with the cases that I deal with, and obviously the cases that I deal with are horrible. I'm talking about cases that involve children. I'm talking about cases that involve death of people's loved ones sexual assaults, you know, people's worst days that are my normal days. But the way that I cope and the way that I get through it is, one, being able to focus on what I'm actually doing and, and isolating down to dealing with that particular evidence at that particular time, but then also getting the satisfaction from 
recognizing that I am helping. I'm helping this person. I'm helping them cope or helping some form of resolution within this particular case. I'm focused on the truth and finding the truth in terms of it doesn't matter what someone else wants. The evidence shows what the evidence shows. Would you prefer to know what happens in the outcomes of the cases or would you prefer not to know? It depends. Sometimes you can't avoid it. You know, you can see it on the news, you go to testify and you're like, oh, cool, you know, that was the result. For me, it doesn't really matter. Once it's off my desk and I've done the best that I can with the evidence that I have, I know there are a large amount of variables that are outside of my control that influence the actual outcome in the courts. It's always nice to be able to follow the case through and see that resolution with a guilty verdict if you know that's actually the truth. But from my perspective, once it's off my desk and I'm satisfied that I've done the absolute most with the evidence that I could, then it doesn't really affect me that much one way or the other in terms of the actual final outcome. Carrie, thank you so much for talking us through the extent of the chemistry. I had no no idea it was as broad as it is. But thank you for so much for explaining so much of it too and the importance of the role in forensic investigations. Thank you very much for having me. It's been wonderful. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly. 